So what we were talking about, what I was talking about, was about what's the point of this? What are we trying to do here? People, it's interesting. It's very important to talk about what do you mean by practice? Be What are you practicing? Because people will say uh, on retreat often, they say, I don't have a lot of time to practice. And I think we have a whole life to practice. You know, Normally they mean, I don't have a lot of time to sit on my zafu in a formal stance. But I think the whole entire life is an opportunity to practice. There isn't a moment that isn't a practice moment. Just in a minute, I'll tell you a story about that. But uh, there, there isn't a moment in which it isn't time to notice how the mind is actually open, equanimous, and benevolent, because it is, or challenged and not benevolent, because it isn't. That's the easiest equation that I know of. When my mind is at ease, my own good heart shows itself out. It's either friendly or compassionate or appreciative. That's just what it does. It isn't because I have a better heart than other people. Everybody's heart does that. But it really requires that I be relaxed, that I have a certain amount of not only uh, composure, which I could get just by concentrating and staying in a secluded place, but composure and equanimity around it, where I can really hold the whole of what happens in life with a fair amount of uh, buoyancy. That's why the word buoyant and resilient reminded me of, ah, this is really what I wanted to talk about. So I want to tell you that buoyant and resilient were two words that uh, that showed up in a wedding ceremony that I uh, um, did for people yesterday in City Hall. And I, um, I want to tell you a story around it because the story around it really has to do with buoyant and resilient and the use of five spiritual faculties. So I'm going to tell you the story, hang on for the story, but I want to put it in the position of the six weeks that we've been doing, the five weeks that have been up to now and now. So I talk about what did the Buddha, the life of the Buddha, what did he teach, how did he teach his own enlightenment, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and last week, the Five Hindrances. And Five Hindrances, you remember, are the way in which the mind suddenly yearns and grabs at things and feels uh, inconsolably needy. It needs something. That's the first of the hindrances is lust. I cannot rest unless I have this. Normally something that will sensually uh, please me. But I actually think I have been gripped by enormous lusts that didn't have to do with I need something, that my body needs something. But my mind needs something. My life is incomplete with. I can't rest unless I have a real lust that uh, that uh, is an insatiable desire. Sometimes people think that that uh, because the second noble truth is frequently translated, the cause of suffering is desire. That we shouldn't desire things. I and mean, We desire things all the time. When I first began to hear about that, I thought, oh, I'm in for a lot of trouble because it, it, as long as I'm alive, things are attractive and interesting and anything that's pleasing arouses desire. Then that happened to you? You see something lovely. Five minutes before, you didn't need that thing. You never even heard of that thing. But then all of a sudden, you have to have that. Look at this rice cooker. It keeps the rice warm. Oh, suddenly, all these years I cooked without this rice cooker, but now I need this one. There's nothing that, I think that that's absolutely fundamental dharma, that in contact with the pleasant, the mind reaches out, it wants it. 
the, the, it becomes a lust and something, a craving and something that's really painful. And actually in Pali, the, the, the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is craving, tanha. And it means more than a lust, it means an insatiable desire to have something. So lust and uh, antipathy, aversion, anger is the second one. The mind needing to have something different the way it is. The, the unfancy way to say that is the mind mad. It gets mad at stuff. The third of the thing of the mind states that you remember we talked about last week that uh, um, prevent the mind from looking out and being friendly and, and uh, compassionate and appreciative is that the mind runs out of steam. It gets exhausted. Um, it's torporous. It can't quite pull itself together. And the fifth is the mind anxious. It's frightened. It's actually interesting because the frightened and the mad are not far from each other. But uh, mind restless, mind unable to settle down is the fourth. And the fifth is what's described in the text as a wobbly energy. And it's called doubt. Um, I think of it as hesitation uh, a lot, you know. Uh, Hesitation in terms of being absolutely sure, resolute in my path, hesitating. I can't do it. This isn't the right thing to do. When my mind is clear, I am resolute. This is either I'll do it or I won't do it. But my mind doesn't wobble, and that wobbling uses up a lot of energy. So I wanted to talk about them a little bit today. And when I prepared, I've been preparing to talk about it, I wanted to see if I could make them fit in some way with what the Buddha taught as the five spiritual faculties. We've talked about them in the past. I want to talk about them again. They're a particular list, the five spiritual faculties. They are concentration, mindfulness, wisdom, energy, and faith. And they're a funny list when you think about them because it's like two apples, two oranges, and a pear. You know, They're not exactly the same things. Because the concentration and mindfulness, you could practice. You could get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to really practice concentration. I'm going to practice concentrating in my meditation. I'm going to take one object. I'm going to stay with my breath. I'm going to stay this, say this particular phrase. I'm going to do may all beings be happy the whole entire day. I could really, you could get up in the morning and say, I'm going to practice being mindful, or concentrated. You could say, I'm going to practice being mindful. I'm going to be attentive to every moment. Name it, feel it, experience it, know it, watch it arise, watch it pass away. And you could do it. You come on a mindfulness retreat, that's what you do. You do concentration and mindfulness all day long. You can't really get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to practice wisdom all day long. I mean, it's a a noble thought, you know, what would the Buddha do? I saw there's a book now, what would the Buddha do? You know, I don't know what the Buddha would do. And if the Buddha would do it, he already did. Now we're here. And if I didn't know what to do, I would be annoyed at thinking to myself that. What would a wise person do? If I knew, I would do it. It's the sort of thing that's kind of irritating to think about. (laughs) But wisdom accrues. You don't just do it. Uh, So I have to count on the fact that mindfulness leads to insights, leads to wisdom. How about energy? There are things that I can do to keep up my energy. It's a different thing. I mean, you, actually, you can't practice energy, but you can cultivate energy. You can, I can decide that um, 
Today I'm going to really, really, I'm going to really, really practice right speech. Not only right speech out, which I'm pretty good at, but right speech in. I'm going to catch every remark that I make to myself that's other than um, uplifting. And uh, I'm going to try to keep myself uplifted. I mean, why should I not? I mean, I tell, I, even if I thought, well, you know, just keep myself uplifted. But it's on behalf of all beings. Why should I not take care to keep my mind buoyant and resilient? And I'll be more available to other people. So if I hear myself telling any kind of a story that's feeling sorry for myself, I think to myself, I can console myself or I can comfort myself I don't have to feel sorry for myself. That actually keeps me a distance from myself. It actually reifies in a certain way my condition. I noticed, Chris, that you said before, I'm realizing that my poor and hurting body is not who I am. It's, you know, it's a factor of my experience, but not constantly. Not constantly. Who I am is something else. I always remember at this point that my grandmother... Uh, who said this in Yiddish, by the way, would say, uh, my, uh, uh, my uh, bursitis is a little worse, and uh, I haven't heard from my uh, cousin in uh, Florida for a long time, and I myself am not feeling so well. That, you know, that I myself am different from the shoulder or my distress about the cousin. I myself was somehow my essence or my being. Uh, and quite apart from the fact that I will acknowledge up front that I don't think that there's a permanent I in there, whatever manifests as my sense of me is either buoyant or not buoyant. And I can do something about either cultivating its buoyancy or not. I'm not always tremendously successful, but I like to think that I could practice right speech of the heart. I could... Uh, uh, do something purposely to help somebody else out, which will always lift me up. I could listen to some Mozart. I could make a soup. There are a number of things that lift up my heart in various categories. And the fifth of them is a little even more complicated to get around. The fifth of those spiritual faculties is faith. And you think, well, faith, you either have it or you don't have it. Well, no, I, I I actually think that I make deposits in my faith bank account uh, when I am able, under a certain circumstance, to rescue my mind from its downward plummet and see that it's a possibility. And I see that that's a possibility. It's a moment of, you could say it's a moment of wisdom. I have recognized that the truth is that we get to choose, that there is a path to freedom, that liberation is a possible move. But then uh, there's something slightly different about when I see that and I get it again, I say, yes, you know, it's really true. So now I'll tell you the story of yesterday. <laughs> but that's the build-up. I want to make I was trying to figure out if I could get each of those spiritual faculties to match up with each of the hindrances. I don't think so, actually. I actually think they come in a package. And they come all together to address all of those vicissitudes of the mind. But I think that different pieces of the package leap up first. So that's what I'm going to try to think out loud with you about and see if you think so too. Now, here's the story. Um, I married two friends of mine in um, 
City Hall yesterday. It was a great day, a beautiful day like today. Uh, they said they would like to be remembered to you. You probably know, remember Martha Lye. When she uh, lived in Marin County, she was here a lot. And uh, she and her partner, Joe Aluma, have been living up in um, Santa Rosa now for a couple of years. So, and taking care of Martha's old mother. So they don't get to come to class. Martha doesn't get to come very much. But um, they uh, celebrated 25 years of being together by getting married yesterday. So it was a great day. Not premature. <laughs> 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 huh? What? <laughs> I didn't rush into it. <laughs> it was a great day. It was a great day. And uh, 12, 13... 13 people there all together in our particular group. And afterwards, uh, we all went over to uh, Max's where they had a space in one of the side rooms where we celebrated together. And uh, the man sitting next to me uh, told me this account of his arriving at, uh, at the wedding. He said, uh, I was having a hard time parking and I was really upset about that. And uh, I, I was driving on the Polk Street side of the building. And on the Polk Street side of the building yesterday, there were uh, people with placards out. Uh, it's the first day that there have been people with placards out with um, terrible statements on the placards. And um, I knew about it. I'd heard about it from a phone call on my way driving in that there were people out. And I was hopeful that everybody would come in from Van Ness Avenue and that nobody would see it, and some of us did and some of us didn't. But anyway, he had this man sitting next to me. He said, I, would, I drove up and I was trying to find a parking space and here were these people with the placards. And he said, I got so mad, he said, and I started to read the placards and my mind would automatically make retorts to all of these statements on the placards and sort of pithy retorts and... <laughs> said, I was really mad, imagine outrageous statements like this. He said, then I got the car parked, and I was just, at that point, really had to come through the protesters to come in. He said, but then I walked in, he said, and I, I took one look at Joelle and Martha, and he said, they were so beautiful, and they were so radiant. He said, my mind so filled with happiness that that whole fume in my mind just fell out of it. And he said, and I realized I don't have to go there anymore. I was in. They were out. They could do whatever they're doing out there. I'm in here at a wedding. And, and so that was a story. So I said, Dennis, can I tell that story tomorrow? <laughs> he said, you can, you can. And, and it was very sweet. He said, what do you teach? I said, that's what I teach. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but that particular... The particular, you see, I'm sure, the particular moment in that, in that whole thing, where here he comes in, he says, "I'm upset. I'm upset that my good friends, are, you know, now I am, up, you know, I'm arriving at my good friends' happy occasion, and my mind is not in a good place." And here, all of a sudden, he sees them spontaneously. They are looking radiant. His heart lifts up, and he is aware of what I have come to call, in my own mind. The syndrome of the break in the clouds. I'll explain to you the syndrome of the break in the clouds. 
You, you probably have watched, anybody has not watched a liftoff at Cape Canaveral. Everybody has watched a liftoff at Cape Canaveral. Every once in a while, you start in and they say, okay, we're at 27 seconds and counting, and then they'll stop at 17, and they'll say, we're at 70, 17 seconds and waiting because the cloud covers come in, so we can't continue the liftoff. So we're waiting, waiting, we're at 17 and waiting. And then you wait a little bit or a lot or until the next day, but whenever, and then they'll suddenly say, there's a break in the clouds now, 17, 16, 15, and they're out. My own experience, which is a very, very long time ago, from my early, early medit- one of my early, early meditation retreats, of uh, thinking about that in this way, came about in this way. I, had, I was away on retreat. My mind had fallen into some place of serious despair. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it recapitulates your life in a wonderful way. Sometimes it gets on a thread of recapitulating every terrible event that happened in your life or every terrible event that happened with just a particular certain kind of valence. Every time I was humiliated for looking foolish or every time I was this for that. And it's got all neatly categorized in file cabinets, I'm sure, and there are a lot of file cabinets and you push, you please read out this file, you get it. So it had been a very long day of reading out some particular very bad file. And I was really, I was left in tears and I left the meditation at the end of the afternoon and uh, it was time for tea, you know, so most people are moving over towards the tea. And I thought to myself, I'm in despair. I don't know what to do with myself. Maybe I'll just go to my uh, cabin where I'm staying. And uh, there's no, everybody will be at tea. It'll be a good time. No one will be using the shower. I'll take a hot shower. Maybe a hot shower will feel good to me. So really trying to figure out how am I going to shake this. This is like being enveloped in a cloud, really like a cloud at Cape Canaveral. And just in that moment, the bell rang for tea. And uh, so the bell rang for tea. And I I had the thought, I wonder what they're going to have for tea. And probably, you know, in those days we had very sparse tea. Now we actually have like a third meal at the end of the day. But in those days we really had tea. And every once in a while they had popcorn or they had... uh, a plum, or on a really amazing day, they had a cookie. So I had the thought for a moment, I wonder what they're going to have for tea. And in that moment, I guess I maybe visualized a cookie, or thought of a cookie, but what I was aware of is in the moment of wondering whether what they were going to have for tea, there was no despair. In that moment, my mind was wondering about what they're going to have for tea. I wasn't even going to, you know, I don't, I don't actually remember if I went for the tea or if I didn't go for the tea. But what I remember is that in that moment, it's a very brief moment, I wonder what they're going to have for tea. Mind is wondering, there's no dismay in it. And I actually thought, this is a break in the clouds in Cape Canaveral. I'm out of here. <laughs> and uh, it really gave me a, a, such a boost in terms of faith of the mind states that seem so solid, so incredibly terrible, are not solid. They actually are clouds, like Cape Canaveral. Sometimes they're very thick clouds, and sometimes the cloud cover is there for a long time. But if I know that they are clouds, then I know that any moment there's going to be a break in the clouds. My job is not to blow the clouds away, because I can't do that, but to wait, really paying attention, until there's a break in the clouds, and then out. 
And I don't know what's going to be the break in the clouds. You know, I was talking to somebody about it the other day. I said, they said, well, what could be a break in the clouds? I don't know. I said, well, you know, if I hear an owl and it's not even dark, I get really excited. You know, that owl has come out and it's not even dark. And I'm suddenly fascinated by that. Or moons are tremendously interesting to me. New moons, full moons. I find my mind's in a particular way and been someplace and I'm upset by what's going on and I walk out of that place. It's a new moon. Oh, it's a break in the clouds. It has to be, for everybody it's a different thing. You know, I remember one time saying to a group of people, what lifts your spirits? Uh, and everybody had such different things. And some people's things were exactly what doesn't lift my spirits, but it lifted theirs, you know? So it's not like a formula. Not everybody, you know, not everybody has moons or Mozart, but people have what lifts their spirits. You don't know. So I want to go back to Dennis's experience yesterday and see if I can do it in terms of the five spiritual faculties. I think the moment of the break in the clouds that happened because he was spontaneously filled with delight at the vision of his friends looking happy. Uh, so the, And delight energizes the mind. You know, when it's fallen in on itself with with anger and resentment and bitterness, it's hard to be energetic. The, it's a kind of as if a heavy cloud has landed in your mind. So here's his friends looking beautiful. So it's a shot of energy. In that, with that, so he's got energy. In that moment, he actually sees that that's a moment of freedom. In that moment, he got it. I'm not in pain. That's actually very good mindfulness that to notice. Five minutes ago, when I was standing out trying to park my car and walking through these crowds, I was mad and bitter and. And all of a sudden, that mad and bitter has disappeared. He had to notice both the energy in his mind and the disappearance of the bitterness. So he noticed both of them. He had to call on a certain amount of wisdom that the wisdom is, now's my chance. I can either go back into the story of what I just saw and go in and recapitulate it, tell all the people in there, hey, you know what's going on on Polk Street? Or... I cannot, you know, here I am, you know, that's finished, that was, what was, was, now I'm here with my friends who are getting married, that's the truth of this. So out of a certain amount of wisdom, we get to choose, sometimes we get to choose, sometimes it feels like the mind can't choose, like it's so leaden and so burdened down it can't choose, but when it can choose, to have the faith that choosing is going to work, and you do it. I don't know what I would do about concentration in that. He had enough mindfulness to be able to see that. So I have to figure that he has enough level of ground level composure in his mind to sustain that mindfulness. He didn't need to do concentration prominently. So if I were going to say about the five faculties coming there, I'd probably put concentration at the end talk about how um, bringing himself present to that uh, ceremony. Actually, what he did was he was the photographer for it. So he would say, well, 
concentration. That probably helped him out. He got in and he got busy doing the photography. Probably consolidates the composure in the mind. That's interesting because in that case, I would put the concentration at the end as the consolidator of the now buoyant mind state. And I, I'll figure out in a minute how to tell you a story where the, the where concentration is the first and then the others come next. I'm going to think of which one I'm going to tell you. I want to tell for um, Esther's, I'm going to tell you all how I uh, reset the uh, Buddhist um, precepts because Esther, who was getting married in two weeks, said after class, I didn't write down fast enough. So I need... <laughs> So if you are interested in knowing, just this is a side little sidebar. This is for Esther in honor of her marriage in two weeks. Uh, The normal Buddhist precepts, uh, you probably all know, are worded in terms of I undertake the vow to abstain from harming living beings, taking what is not freely given, using speech that's harmful or abusive, expressing my sexuality in a way that's harmful or abusive, um, I abstain from uh, uh, intoxicating myself in any way with anything that confuses my mind and leads to heedlessness. And when in the past I have married people, we've talked about those vows and uh, that those are ways to live uh, one's own life as a person, but certainly uh, to uh, for people who... Uh, uh, understand about Dharma and like this way of talking about a life dedicated to goodness and kindness and peace in one's own self and one's community and in the world, that they take those vows in the context of their relationship with each other. And in the past, up to yesterday, I've always talked those vows in a ceremony and people have said that, yes, that's indeed the way that they intend to live with each other in that framework of goodwill. And most often they add their own affirmations and vows and promises and talk about why that, what else they are bringing in addition to that foundation. And I decided two days ago that I wanted to say those vows in a positive way rather than abstain from. I wanted to say I have the positive intention too. And so now slowly, so Esther is writing, I said... Um, I I said five things again, and instead of saying I undertake the vow too, I said what both of them have said is because I love you, I intend to do everything I can for your well-being. Because I love you, I intend to protect you and keep you safe. Because I love you, I intend to speak to you in truth and in kindness. Because I love you, I intend to respect and comfort your body. Because I love you, I intend to keep my mind clear and unconfused and buoyant and resilient so that I can choose well on your behalf, on my behalf, and on behalf of all beings.
Esther, you wrote. Don't take short But I've got more. Okay. It's on the tape. It's on the tape. What was the last six words? I got everything until um, on behalf of, and it was that last little fragment. On behalf of you, on behalf of myself, and on behalf of all beings. Clear and unconfused and buoyant and resilient so that I can choose well. We're always making choices and in partnership we're really always making a lot of choices that involve somebody else more than ourselves. So, not set in stone those phrases, but... um, I like to think about them in the positive. Yeah. I'm just curious because although they are totally appropriate and pertinent to the situation of joint celebration, really they could be said in relationship to children because after all I think that's the way parents really do hold their children. Mm -hmm. And in some way ultimately it's the way children really hold parents when the responsibility shifts Mm -hmm. and, you know, over generations, you know, you know, we were taken care of hopefully, when we were young, reasonably well. And ultimately, it's our intention to do likewise in reverse. Mm-hmm. I think, actually, you could say them to anybody. Whom you feel. Whom you feel. Because I love you. Because I love you. Yeah, yeah. Because I love you. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, so what makes it special to uh, people marrying them, each other? There is something special about saying it, uh, at least there was, Something special about saying that out loud to somebody else who's standing there in the presence of witnesses. Um, I would like someone to say that to me in the presence of witnesses. (laughs) That was my gauge, anyway. So I want, I'm, I'm still thinking back actually on David's question. What makes it different in a, in a wedding? Was it different? or uh, Maybe the fact that, uh, the, that they said it out loud in the co- co- company of witnesses and maybe because it was framed in terms of this is what Joel and Martha have agreed is the framework in which they intend to live together as spouses for life. Maybe that's what makes it a marriage ceremony. That's a particular piece. I'm so sorry that Martha isn't here today. She would be enjoying this. I'll tell her about it. I can still hear her voice. I know she has, for better or for worse, a strong presence. Well, she hasn't been here for quite a while. Yeah. But 
I have her voice in my ears. I remember all the times she was here. And also, Sylvia, it seems to me that she had some role in one form or another in some of your books and sort of making them happen. And I'm very aware that the pleasure I have gotten from your books has a Martha input into it. They do. They do. She has... um, she she uh, typed my first two manuscripts. She edits them all. Um, I uh, I call her every time I write. I, I mean, first of all, she's a good friend of mine, but she also edits all the articles that I write for the Shambhala Sun before I sent them off to the Sun. So we are very good friends for a long time. Um, I will. <laughs> and maybe she'll edit it. <laughs> maybe she'll think I said the wrong thing. <laughs> maybe I'll get it to come next week and everybody can say congratulations. Actually, would you do that? Would you? No, not that she should come next week. But would you express um, our celebration for her celebration? I will. I will. And maybe she'll come. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Would you repeat the very first? <laughs> <laughs> because I love you, I, I intend to do everything I can for your well-being. Because I love you, I intend to protect you and keep you safe. Because I love you, I intend to speak to you truth in truth and in kindness because I love you. I intend to respect and comfort your body because I love you. I intend to keep my mind clear and unconfused. You are right. (laughs) (laughs) And buoyant and resilient. Shall we tell everyone that you're getting married? Is that all right? (laughs) 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 Well, I just did. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> okay. So I can choose well to. On behalf of you, on behalf of myself, and on behalf of all beings. <coughs> Chris. Uh, footnote, not just for those of us who are single, but these are good, as you mentioned earlier, to say as follows to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Be a great thing. Get up in the morning and say it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Put it on the bathroom mirror, you know? Mm-hmm. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking actually of etching it in. <laughs> so here's my thought, folks. Help me figure this out. I've been thinking and thinking. Because I want, I want to really be able to teach these five spiritual faculties um, as if they're a toolkit. Here's, my, here's the metaphor that I'm thinking about. When I'm in a good place, when I'm not frightened, 
just like when you're not frightened. We are appreciative and cheerful and enjoy other people's good fortune. Not everybody knows James and Corey, but everybody applauded because we know what it means that you should fall in love and want to be married to somebody. Not everybody knows, very few people know, the child that I talked about that's the son of Ray's friend. But, you know, you hear a story about a 10-year-old child that has lymphoma. You feel bad. You don't know who even, but somewhere in the world there's a 10-year-old child who has lymphoma. And you feel for that child and that child's parents. It's an amazing thing, I think, that we have responsive hearts. You know, One of the things that I enjoy very much in my grandchildren's development, and my children's and now my grandchildren's development, is, um, you know the pages in children's books where it has faces with expressions. There's a particularly notable one in uh, the Richard Scarry book, uh, The Best Word Book Ever, with a page of pictures of, because all of his people are animals, pictures of pigs, just a pig face, and maybe a dozen of them. And you can take a three-year-old and say, what does this one feel? Why, how is he? That isn't what does he feel. How is he? And they will say, happy, laughing, crying, uh, frightened, scared is what they'll say, scared, worried. How do you do worried? Show me worried. Yeah, worried is scrunched up over here. You see over here, worried. And so we read faces very early on, and we have a whole palette of emotional response, not just yes and no, I like it and I don't like it. We know there's a whole display of range of feelings that we have and very soon because we feel all those feelings we know how other people feel when they have those feelings so you can talk to a four-year-old about how do you feel when somebody doesn't share their toys with you and say oh yeah I have that feeling or how do you feel when da 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 that particular piece of us that nuanced repertory of feelings is what I think makes us uh, what I think of when I think of the Buddha calling this the best of all possible realms for incarnation. You know, in the Buddhist um, uh, cosmology, there are uh, deity realms and angelic realms and then human realms. And in those angelic realms, it's supposed to be wonderful. There's no, no problems, you know. I have a feeling, it's like Sunday school pictures of angels floating around. And, but they don't have any worries, nor does that very much happen there. You know, that's just angels floating around. And there's no strife, but no glory either. Just angels floating around. I'm not sure what happens in those deity realms. Then here's this human realm, and then there are animal realms, presumably, in that cosmology. And what are called woeful realms, where uh, there's a whole cosmology that predates the Buddha, even, about incarnations that are uh, woeful. Leaving aside that, in this human realm, recognizing that animals have feelings, they like their uh, domestic animals, certainly like their uh, people, and uh, look after them and in a certain way if they're trained to do that. And... Uh, even not well, farm animals know their people and get used to them, and uh, horses. And but you wonder about this human realm that has a whole 
uh, potential of uh, remembering and planning, of being nostalgic and looking forward to. I'm not sure that cows and horses don't, you know, we don't know. But um, I think a lot of the range of human feelings has to do with nostalgia and looking forward. You know, when, when it's different. I have two friends whose uh, mothers died this winter. Third one, the mother is dying. All three <laughs> elderly women. So my two friends with the mothers who've already died have a really a sense of fulfillment there. One mother was 87, the other one was 92. They lived full lives, these women. Their deaths were what you might call timely deaths. And my friends are lonesome. Anyway, they say, you know, it's different if the person is not in the world. If you, you know, it's, or it's even, even that you could say to yourself, it's a blessing, their bodies didn't work anymore, they were in pain, all of that, it is a blessing, and their bodies didn't work anymore, and this is what happens to people, and it, it's inevitable, and they live long and full lives, and neither of my friends can get up in the morning and phone their mother on the telephone and hear their voice. And it's a different thing. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just that they remember how it was to have a mother on the telephone. And now they don't anymore. And wherever we are in a life, we're either looking forward to something we might have or looking back at something that we did have. And often with a certain amount of um, connection. And I am actually glad for those connections. I think it's what makes me alive and interested in my life and, and wanting to continue in it with the fact that all the connections are inevitably going to be, if they aren't already, sources of pain because I'll be, I'll be disconnected from them or them from me. The connections with people and the connections with um, what I have held dear on every level that uh, every time there's something else that I can't do with my physical body, there's something to get used to. Say, oh, who knew this? Okay, you regroup, you have a new normal, you continue. But there's a certain nostalgia. You watch people skiing on a film clip, and you say, oh, I used to do that. And it's like a moment of, ah. So how to live with vulnerable hearts. Actually, I think the fact that we live it with vulnerable hearts gives me courage about the world, which I feel is in... I don't know, more trouble than ever before. It's been in some very desperate times, but seems to be in particularly desperate times. Now the whole planet in desperate times. That I'm counting on the fact that people have vulnerable hearts to, in the end, make a difference. That at some point, I'm hoping that enough clear seeing will suddenly prevail and people will say, hey, we have to do something else about living in the world and live in a more... uh, in a way that sustains life rather than um, injures it. So I'm telling you that whole thing about the vulnerability of the heart because um, there's a way in which I take a lot of courage from the fact that my heart is easily touched and the, the way that I take courage also from the fact that it's, it has a moral inventory. It won't let me get too far from uh, making a mistake before it tells me about it and uh, uh, causing me to feel uh, sorry that I've made the mistake. We talked earlier in the ethics, in in the precepts this morning, 
about wise ways of relating to oneself when one has made a mistake, any kind of a mistake. And the non-wisdom of uh, uh, thinking ill of oneself, that that actually doesn't help you out. I never, it just occurs to me now, that I never stayed in a course in which I got a bad grade. I just didn't try harder. Getting a bad grade did not encourage me. (laughs) Getting a pretty good grade with encouragement, you know, you have it in you to do great, kept me in classes. I actually think about writing a book called Where Never Is Heard a Discouraging Word. I think there would be a... But because the most discouraging words I tell myself. So I've been thinking about how glad I am that I have that moral inventory, uh, especially if I don't beat myself up about it, but if I use it to alert myself to, oh, pay more attention, because then I'm counting on the fact that everybody's got a moral inventory and that everybody is equally apt to get feedback from their moral inventory about let's do this in a way that's more kind. Let's do it in a way that takes care of other people. I wanted to tell you at least one more story. I'm going to start and see where we get, but it's coming at 11 o'clock. I wanted to make the hindrances into uh, five kinds of um, five kinds of categories. The categories, oh, now I know why I got into this whole business of how the heart is normally. I wanted to tell you the heart normally, I wanted to make the case first that the heart normally, if it isn't startled or confused or uh, bewildered or angry or in any way held captive, actually is of its own self benevolent. Um, I've been thinking about uh, if I could characterize the heart as a musical instrument. Uh, that spontaneously sings a certain song, that it sings a song of love, that it sings, I love you. Uh, I care about you. I'm concerned about you. Take care of yourself. I appreciate you. I think you're wonderful. Uh, May you be peaceful. May you be happy. That's the kind of a song that it sings, if it's not frightened. I think we come, that this engine, that this organism comes equipped, and they send it from wherever it comes, it comes equipped with such a an instrument as a heart. When you assemble it, it's already the heart is already assembled, but it's not tuned. You know, it has to get tuned. It gets tuned in your family and in your community, I think. They do the tuning. But it's already if it's got the right pieces in there, it's ready to get tuned. It just needs final tuning. And the final tuning is usually the the way in which people are raised up, especially in the beginning of their lives. But and not only in their family, but in their community. Then I want to talk, think about extending that metaphor to the whole of the life and say, okay, if my musical instrument stays in tune, if my heart stays in tune, it will spontaneously sing a good song. There are lots of ways that the heart gets out of tune. And if I could say this, if I, if the song of my heart would be, if I could say there's a song in my heart, but I'm too mad to hear it. There's a song in my heart, but I'm too uh, worried to hear it. There's a song in my heart, I'm too tired to hear it. There's a song in my heart. Mm, mad 
and tired and anxious. I'm too busy to hear it? Busy is good. Confused is good, Rose, because confused is all the hindrances. And I had confused for a while. And I'm trying to move to confuse to more specific confusions because the truth is that when I'm mad and uh, tired and busy and, what was it, mad, tired, busy, exhausted or frightened, I'm confused. By definition, they all confuse me. And I'm in pain with all of them. And, you know, when I'm in, uh, when I'm in physical pain, if I was sitting here and I suddenly were to feel dizzy or I had a headache or my stomach hurt, I would think to myself, oh, something is, uh, something, I'm in pain, I would think. I need to do something about it. I would think, oh, I wonder if they have aspirin or... I wonder if they have Pepto-Bismol or whatever it is that I need. I would think about the possible remedies for my pain. When I get frightened or, well, let's do those again, frightened, mad, tired, busy. Frightened, mad, tired, busy. That was worried. Okay, there you go. Uh, usually, often, I get caught in what am I frightened of? What am I worried about? Uh, what am I mad about? Uh, and I shouldn't be mad. And if I really had vision, I wouldn't be mad. And so I, I don't even think about what is it that's causing this dismay. But then I do elaborations of whether it should or shouldn't be there and how I could get rid of it or not. And what I do with all those elaborations, what? <laughs> and whose fault it is. And whose fault it is and who's to blame. And if it's not theirs, it's mine. And I should have foreseen this. I mean, there's, a, there's tremendous elaboration on that. And what I'm missing when I'm doing that is I'm missing the underlying truth of all of them, which is, like the physical distress, I'm in pain. With any of those, I'm in pain. And if I think to myself about a headache or a stomachache, I would think to myself, I'm in pain. What can I take for this? What can I do for myself? What do I need to do? What's the remedy? If I thought that first about any kind of mental distress, I would think, I'm in pain. Okay. So what could I do? Then I think to myself, okay, I got this little toolkit. So I think about if I had a piano and it went out of tune, and the piano tuner comes to tune, they don't have one tool. They have a kit. They come in, they tune the piano. I'm thinking of this kit of the five faculties. Of I could take out those five faculties and I could see which piece of this kit is going to work now. The truth is that the whole kit is going to be useful. But what's going to be the first piece of it? So what I had hoped to do was to tell you one more story. But this was such a good story with Dennis yesterday. It was a great story. But next week what I want to do is I want to see, I will in the course of the week, and see if you can parse this out into five different, um, five different, you know how we've had five different vows? See if you can make five dis- different sentences, which would which would be, I would sing you the song in my heart, but I'm too mad to do it, I'm too frightened to do it, I'm too tired to do it, I'm too um, worried to do it. I have to see how worried is different from frightened, but actually worried is different from frightened. And and I'm too exhausted. I would sing you the song in my heart, but I'm too tired to do it. 
we might be able, that might be it. And I doubt that there's even a song in my heart. <laughs> I've, I, you know, I would sing you the song in my heart, but I have forgotten it. That they, I forgot, or I doubt I have one. I doubt I have one. So listen, you don't have to do those five we had. That's actually a very good idea, Aaron. I like that idea very much. There was a, there was a, I was sure I had a song in my heart, but now I doubt it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, hey, Sylvia, the, the, the salve, the ointment, the balm is compassion, and, that's, and that isn't one of your five. No, the balm is always compassion, Rose, but you have to get to that place of saying um, that the balm is always compassion, but it's going to come at the end. Something else has to come in, because when my mind is in a stew, it has to first see I'm in a stew. That's mindfulness. It could be otherwise. That's wisdom. I'm so droopy. I don't know what to do about it. What can I do to raise up my energy at this point? Um, can I do something to uh, calm my mind down and soothe me? Can I breathe a little bit? Can I take ten breaths and do a little concentration? Okay, I did ten breaths. My mind settled down a little bit. See, it's going to work. That's faith. And say, wow, you were in a mess, Sylvia. May you be peaceful. May your troubles soon end. Then the compassion comes in. But first you've got to get a foot in the door. Because otherwise compassion, I mean, you could think about compassion, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Actually, it's a very good way to end. Uh, we sometimes do this, and I sometimes forget to do it. But um, one minute. Of remembering Spalding Gray. Of remembering everyone else in this week who has passed out of this life or in recent times and is being missed by their people. And remembering um, for whom this is an occasion of uh, a period of time of great happiness and new beginnings. for all the beginnings and all the endings and for the great extraordinary adventure of being a human being, the capacity for um, uh, responding to other people's joy with empathic joy and appreciation, other people's uh, sadnesses with consolation and compassion, responding to all beings with general goodwill and the recognized shared experience of being a person. What it may, whatever merit we have accrued by coming together, by practicing together, by being together in this uh, way of dedicated intention to create for ourselves hearts and minds 
that are clear and unconfused and buoyant and resilient on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of our communities, and on behalf of all beings. May we offer the merit for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings everywhere come to the end of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 10, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.